1: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast.
0: This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Simply Safe. You can save twenty percent on your Simply Safe security system and get your first month free when you sign up with interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafecom dot com missionlog to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's s i m p l i s a f e dot com mission log
1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode four hundred and nineteen, the Siege of AR-558.
2: Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast.
0: I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we hunker down, dig in, and brace ourselves as we take a look at each and every episode and film in Star Trek to seek out the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein and see if they have withstood the test of time. This week, the siege of AR-558. The
2: one where Cisco comes face-to-face with the horrors of the Dominion War on the front
0: lines. We look forward to exploring this very powerful episode for all of you. And if you would like to discuss this or any episodes that we have produced, here is how you can contact and stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here is John Champion with your trivia. Today's episode is written by
2: Ira Stephen Baer and Hans Beimler. And yes, it was their concept in an episode that they nurtured along, inspired by elements from real history. David Weddle confirmed that there was influence from the Battle of Guadalcanal that uh, made its way into the story. In fact, Weddle's father was a Marine who fought there during World War II. It was directed by Wienrich Kolbe, a familiar name for us since Wienrich worked on many TNG and DS9 episodes, and this being next to the last one that he did in DS9's run, but we will see much more of him on Voyager. And this episode is well-suited for his personal background. Winrich was born in Nazi-occupied Netherlands in 1940, and he served in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. He used his experiences there to create the sense of danger and waiting that drives this episode. It's said that he partly based his interpretation on the real-life battle of uh, Khe San in 1968. And this episode, by the way, is the 8th episode of Season 7. It is the 158th episode of Deep Space Nine, but the internal production code was 40510-558, hence the title AR-558. Let's talk about our guest stars. Among the Starfleet personnel who we meet, there's Vargas, played by Raymond Cruz, and Here's an actor with a strong background in a number of feature films as well as TV. He was in Under Siege, Training Day, and Alien Resurrection. He is probably best known for playing Tuco Salamanca on a handful of episodes of Breaking Bad, and that got him a Saturn Award nomination in 2010. And he was nominated multiple times by the Screen Actors Guild as part of the ensemble for The Closer. Reese, played by Patrick Kilpatrick, Here's yet another actor with a very long resume in feature films going all the way back to 1984's trauma production, The Toxic Avenger. Look for the guy with the red face paint holding up fast food joint with a shotgun and meeting an unfortunate end. That's him. So much followed, like Eraser and Minority Report, not to mention a ton of TV guest roles. We will see him twice more when Patrick returns for two roles on Voyager. Kellen, played by Bill Mummy, and that should be a well-known name to genre fans. He's an actor, a writer, a musician. Fish heads, anyone? And also happens to be a sci-fi fan and a friend of Ira Stephen Bear. You may best know Bill from either Babylon 5 or as young Will Robinson On Lost in Space, yet this is his only Star Trek appearance. And in command of them all is Lieutenant Larkin, played by Annette Held. We've mentioned Annette once before. She was in the third season DS9 episode Visionary, in which O'Brien started having visions of the future. She was also in a small role in the movie Star Trek First Contact. And while there's a good number of TV and film roles on Annette's resume through the year 2000, it is on stage where she has done a tremendous amount of work with many repertory and Shakespeare stops along the way. We will see her again when we reach Voyager.
1: Are you sure we didn't need to take the AR-557 exit back there? They have a stuckies and everything. Oh, well. I'm sure everything will be okay.
0: Prologue. It's open mic tryouts in Vic Fontaine's lounge as Rom finishes singing the classic standard, The Lady is a... scamp. Well, at least that's what Rom thought, hoping to impress Vic and get the gig. Shortly after Vic lets down Rom in his typical cool and easy way... Dr. Bashir arrives to pick up some of Vic's recorded songs, a few 400-year-old classic standards that Bashir thinks will boost the spirits of the weary soldiers, who he will assess with Captain Sisko when they arrive on AR-558, located deep in the Chintaka system within Cardassian space. In the captain's ready room, Constable Odo delivers a casualty list to the weary Captain Sisko of yet another round of devastating reports of the fallen, and yet another reminder of how each day and each casualty list in this war are starting to tragically blend together. He's snapped out of his malaise by a comms call from Colonel Kira, who informs him that the Defiant is ready to depart for AR-558. On the Defiant, as they are making their way through the Chintaka system— Quark laments his involvement in this whole affair. It appears that Grand Negus Zek has specifically chosen him to assess the Ferengi's financial opportunities amidst the swirling chaos of the war, and no matter how hard Ezri tries to cheer him up, Quark is reminded why he loathes being on this mission, as the Defiant is rocked by incoming Jem'Hadar weapons fire. Making his way to the bridge—well, escorted to the bridge alongside Worf, who he stumbled into on in the corridors— Quark unintentionally embarrasses and shames his nephew, Nog, by hovering over him, making sure that Nog is okay. Beside himself with shame, Nog promises to Captain Sisko that this will never happen again. However, his feelings are immediately put aside as the Defiant reaches their destination, the barren planet known as AR-558, where after beaming to a designated location, they come under instant phaser fire. Act 1. Declaring who they are and hearing muttering voices in the distance as the phaser attacks subside, Captain Sisko and his away team cautiously approach the perimeter's barricade and are introduced to a platoon of war-torn and battle-hardened ground troops led by Lieutenant Larkin, whose commanding officers have since been killed in previous Jem'Hadar attacks. She informs Sisko that only a third of their original force has survived within the last five months of being stationed there, while Vargas, a wounded and exhausted soldier demands why they haven't been rotated out, as per Starfleet's policy to do so every 90 days. After Nog finishes his order to deploy supplies, Quark tries to convince his nephew that no matter how much Nog admires and tries to win over the respect of his fellow Human soldiers, they are only a few degrees away from just being as ruthless and as bloodthirsty as the most brutal of Klingons, once you take away the creature comforts that make them reasonable, soft, and comfortable Tending to the surviving platoon's wounded, Dr. Bashir treats Vargas, who violently protests the treatment of a certain bandaged part of his arm. It was the last thing that McGreevy, a fellow soldier who annoyed Vargas to no end, did for him, until a phaser blast ended McGreevy's life. After treating the wounded and assessing the situation, Bashir advises Captain Sisko that both the health and the morale of the soldiers, due to their prolonged stay and constant sorties with the Jem'Hadar, has pushed them to the breaking point. Afterwards, Lieutenant Larkin gives Cisco a tour of the reason why the Federation has dug in so deeply on AR-558. For the past five months, the Federation platoon was ordered to defend a Dominion Communications Array, but have yet to find out how to make it work to track sensitive enemy information exchanges. But all of this will have to wait, as a muffled explosion in the distance is heard. To Sisko's shock, Larkin and another frontline veteran named Reese inform the captain that a cloaked anti-personnel mine dubbed Houdini's are yet another way that the Jem'Hadar has imposed their will over the beleaguered Starfleet soldiers. But as Reese is so caustically to point out, it's not the captain's problem, as he will be leaving soon. Suddenly, Worf contacts Sisko from the Defiant and informs him that he's under attack by the Jem'Hadar and that ground troops have been beamed down to their location. Sisko orders Worf to break orbit and that he and the way team are staying behind to defend their position and to hold. Act 2. Base fortifications are underway as Sisko and his platoon prepare for the inevitable. And before Nog's exceptional hearing can pinpoint any enemy movements... A wave of Jem'Hadar soldiers decloak and attack the Federation barricade as they open fire on the enemy, who strangely doesn't fire back. Reese, being the experienced combat veteran that he is, declares that something's wrong. The Jem'Hadar platoon is simply a diversion. Holographic soldiers whose only purpose was a fact-finding mission to assess the defensive capabilities of their Starfleet counterparts, and they succeeded spectacularly. And just as soon as they let their guard down, another Houdini mine explodes, and another soldier drops to the ground. Inside the compound, Esri has been closely working with crewman Kellen, an engineer who has survived the Jem'Hadar siege these past five months. And even though they have been hard at work trying to access the communications array... Sisko orders both Dax and Kellen to redouble their efforts and shift their attention to finding a way to isolate and locate the Houdinis, which have become their most primary threat. Meanwhile, as Nog stands vigilant on his sector of the barricade, Uncle Quark tries to offer him both comfort and food while debating the finer points about what it means to be Ferengi. Meaning to Quark, this war could have been prevented by negotiating with the Dominion so everyone would benefit. You can't profit if you're dead. Nog, however, sees it differently and does not subscribe to that kind of Ferengi cowardice anymore. Knowing that the Jem'Hadar are constantly jamming their tricorders and sensors, Sisko orders Nog to use his exceptionally gifted hearing to try and locate the enemy force's position. Quark protests and makes sure that Sisko's hypocrisy is brought to the fore as Quark points out that if it were Jake, things would be different. Perhaps, but as Cisco so dryly puts it to Quark, Jake isn't a Starfleet officer. Act 3. Finally, there is a breakthrough, as Dax's engineering efforts cut through the jamming signals with a specially modified tricorder. The question is now, how can they use this advantage to locate and reveal the locations of all the Houdinis inside and around the base's perimeter? Meanwhile, while scouting for Jem'Hadar movements and locations, Nog, Larkin, and Reese approach Jem'Hadar enemy territory, close enough for Nog's hearing to secure the answers Sisko needs, but were soon discovered, and during the retreat, Larkin is cut down, and Nog drops and bellows out in agony, having been struck below the knee by enemy fire. Reese, with a traumatized Nog in tow, makes his way back to the inner barricade and to safety, citing that the kid did all right. Later in the infirmary, as the concerned Captain Sisko checks in on Nog, an irate Quark steps right up to him and tells him that Nog is going to lose his leg. Act 4. Dr. Bashir informs Quark that Nog's leg had to be removed but is stable and out of immediate danger. But there may be issues with his recovery using a synthetic leg. Only time will tell. Furious with Sisko, Quark takes out his rage on the Captain— blaming him for treating Nog as expendable as cannon fodder. But Sisko takes great exception to Quark's allegations and sternly reminds Quark that all the lives under his command matter, not just Nog's, all of them. Shortly after leaving Quark and now standing beside Nog resting in his hospital bed, Sisko tries to reassure him that he accomplished his mission and that he is proud of him. And even though Nog is grateful for Sisko's faith in him, he needs to hear from his captain that all of the suffering and dying that has been endured to protect this Dominion Communications Array has been worth it. All Sisko can say is, I hope to God it is. All is not lost, however, as Ezri and Kellen have found a way to locate and reveal the Houdinis so that they can be isolated and destroyed. But Sisko has other plans for them. He's going to mine a corridor between the Jem'Hadar and the Federation so that when they attack, the Jem'Hadar will get a taste of their own technology. However, Ezri reminds Sisko that he will be using the very technology that not long ago he condemned for being an inhuman weapon, the kind only the Dominion would use. And as the remainder of the Starfleet forces make ready for the onslaught of Jem'Hadar hordes, a strange yet soothing sound echoes within the caverns. It's Vic Fontaine's voice. Dr. Bashir is hoping that piping the recordings that Vic gave him earlier through the base's comm system would help ease the tension of an already hyper alert platoon who could use even the briefest of mental respites. Quark, however, chooses to remain by Nog's side and watch over his dear nephew come what may. Soon, in the distance, telltale signs of the battle have begun. The Houdinis are working their magic by thinning the Jemhadar columns as planned. But were they enough? they weren't, as waves of once-distant silhouettes burst through debris clouds and smoke, crying out for war as Sisko orders his platoon to open fire. Act 5. Wave after wave after wave of Jem Hadar throw themselves in front of each other, soaking up enemy phaser fire and eventually overwhelming the meager Federation resistance that Sisko is so desperately trying to hold together. The battle is joined. The Jem'Hadar have fought past the barrage of Sisko's phaser defenses, forcing the far physically weaker Federation troops to engage in hand-to-hand combat. Reese manages to cut down his assailants, but Vargas is lost to overwhelming numbers, as is Kellen, who protects Ezri from a Jem'Hadar blast, which was meant for her. As the Jem'Hadar penetrate the base, even the infirmary was infiltrated. But a well-armed quark managed to protect Nog with a lightning-fast draw of his phaser, cutting down his assailant. Outside, however, upon the barricade and drowning in the violent chaos within, a severely wounded Sisko loses consciousness and watches his forces buckle as his vision turns to black. Awakening some time later and surprised to see a very much alive Reese standing over him, Sisko gets up and realizes that so many were dead, but they did in fact hold. Later, as fresh reinforcements are deployed to reinforce the station, Worf informs Sisko that Nog has been taken by Dr. Bashir to the USS Veracruz for proper medical attention. Worf reminds the captain that a great battle has been won and that songs will be sung about it which makes Sisko reflect on the cost of it all. Later, on the barricade, Sisko and Reese watch closely as so many new and raw replacements, children, take their place in the war as he did five months ago. And before beaming out, Reese almost ceremoniously throws his makeshift dagger into the sand. Safely back aboard Deep Space Nine, Sisko is met once again with a next casualty report. As Kira arrives to check in on him, he tells her that there are 1,730 names on this new list, and that even though there are so, so many, each one of them will be remembered for the ultimate sacrifice that they have made. The end. So we got to open with something
2: lighthearted, and I just love Rom auditioning. Because it is just as cute and awkward as we would expect. And a nice short way to work Vic in in for this episode, Mm -hmm. but also have that give us some payoff later. I know that in some previous episodes, you and I have both felt like, well, we love Vic, but you take up these chunks of scenes with him where they do a whole song and it just feels like the pacing gets a little off kilter. I thought this was such a good way to use him. And then not have him overstay his welcome or or divert the story too much. And from what I understand,
0: Max is actually a very good singer.
2: Really, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah he he does the the Rat Pack show at Vegas mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Jeffrey Combs and Casey Biggs, and I think Armin is in there. Yeah, yeah. So not surprising.
0: There's a quote that stands out for me. Uh, the irony of this scene is palpable. It's when mm-hmm. when Quark is standing with Cisco. And telling him that, you know, he's, he's basically um, protesting that Nog has to be sent on a dangerous mission. Mm-hmm. And he says, I bet you wouldn't send Jake out there. And Cisco mm-hmm. says, Jake's not a Starfleet officer. That's not an answer. Mm-hmm. That's not an answer. It's evasion. Hmm. That's the way I see it. Yeah? All right. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. I, well,
2: I, I mean, he has a point. Well, they both have a good point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I agree that that may not be the most satisfactory answer. What I will say, though, is that I love right after that – well, not right after that, but a a little later in the episode, um, Cisco actually just like, look, I'm going to tell you this one last time (laughs) and puts Quark in his place. And I thought that was kind of a a, a marvelous way to – have these two competing ideas, these competing characters uh, uh, with short scenes actually land some meaningful moments between them, you yeah. know? Um, let's see. Oh, oh, and I, I kind of just referenced it a moment ago. But I, I like that we get Vic's music recorded. And he references, maybe I could do a USO thing, because it drives home that wartime experience. But I did have a question about that. Mm-hmm. In a hologram, does Vic actually have to make recordings or does the computer just download somehow to somehow manifest them? And then, boom, here's a data rod for you to take with you.
0: I have a question for your question. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) So did Vic record them on a holographic data rod in the hologram?
2: Okay, so... So how does that work? Yeah, so I thought about
0: that, and maybe it's sort of like
2: uh, Dr. Pulaski eating a real crumpet in the holodeck on the Enterprise, where everything's holographic, but every now and then the computer basically can just uh, replicate a thing. So a singular thing like a crumpet,
0: or in this case, a data rod with a recording on it. I'm being cheeky, so all of you out there, you know that... Bashir gave him the data rod prior to his recording. Please relax.
2: Yeah, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Fair. I think that's totally fair. (laughs) Now, uh, I will say that having Quark along for the mission, it felt like it was stretching it a bit. We'll come back to that a little later. I'm sure the pros and the cons there. But, you know, you had to have a scene to justify why he's there because everybody is going to ask, why is he there? So they did it.
0: They got out of the way up front but it still sort of makes you question like, okay, really? <laughs> you know, but it leads for great tension later on, as I, you know, quoted earlier that, mm-hmm. you know, those scenes between Cisco and Quark had to happen. They had to happen in this episode. Yeah. Um, so I love like textural juxtaposition. So mm-hmm. when, when the Houdini minds were basically thinning out the hordes of Jem Hadar, oh. and then you had Vic Taine's song literally score that entire scene yeah. I thought that was absolutely marvelous. I thought it was a masterstroke in in the aesthetic and the choices made to to capture that uh, that sentiment in that scene.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and, and there are movies that do a really good job of that like taking taking a song rather than a score and yeah. and, and making the moment not necessarily fit and yet it ends up fitting perfectly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, there are great directors like Coppola or Kubrick, you know, who can do this kind of thing, uh, who have both obviously done very impactful war movies as well, where you can uh, just sort of make the moment a little bit surreal and by doing that makes it even more real even yeah. more emotionally resonant i thought that was great um we do have to give a shout out to uh bill Mumy delivering the line i'm an engineer not a magician <laughs> classic trek lines classic for a reason well mm-hmm. done
0: and i have to apologize uh to the audience because every single time that i hear bill Mumy speak in this episode I can't help but hear Lanier from Babylon 5. <laughs> First of all, because I'm very close to Babylon 5, as many, of you, as many of you know. But secondly, because it's just, he has such a very distinctive um, voice. He mm-hmm. just does. And yep. uh, it's the Bill Moomy voice, but for me, it's, he'll, he will always be Lanier. Yep. Uh, and now I have kind of like these mental projected images of Lanier talking to Ezri uh, in that cavern, which is, for my headcanon, phenomenal. Um, I love the irony that uh, when Bashir is programming his phaser and then Reese looks at him and said, you've done that before. And he mm-hmm. basically explains, I joined Starfleet to save lives. Deet, 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 deet. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, but Perfect. he can't save lives unless he himself is alive. So yeah. there is the rub. Yeah. He has to take them to save them, which I yeah. think is uh, a very interesting way to kind of uh, frame Dr. Bashir in that moment. I agree. When we talked to Armin uh, in our interview with him, uh, we talked mm-hmm. to him about uh, how difficult it was for him to act through his uh, applications and the latex. And please pay attention to certain scenes uh, with him. Watch his eyes because he said that that was probably one of the best ways that he can convey emotions. Watch his eyes in most of his scenes because you're, you're looking at employing a master class of subtlety through very limited means of being able to convey emotion. Armin is masterful in this episode.
2: Yeah, and that's something else that we will, I'm sure, hit quite a bit more uh, as we have our full discussion on this. He is terrific in this episode. And there was another thing about the Ferengi that, you know, sometimes they're played for, well, back in the day, they were played ferocious, and sometimes they're played for pure comedy, and sometimes there's a weird, uh, sinister edge that we introduce, even if it's comedy. This episode, that scene when Nog gets hit and hits the ground and howls, this is the first time that that did not sound like a joke to Mm -hmm. me. Because clearly it was something that was made up by Armin or Max at some point. I can't remember who first did it in DS9. And you just kind of go, okay, this is a bit. This is the actor making us uh, still remember that these are kind of weird, quirky aliens. They don't react exactly like humans do. And that howl became a thing. This is the first time it felt terrifying mm-hmm. and and not like a little bit that an
0: actor is doing. You know? It was bone chilling.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely bone chilling.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and literally landed that scene, the, the emotional impact of that scene. Yep. Um, and uh, I really love at the end when... When Patrick Kilpatrick, his Reese, he throws his dagger in the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, I took it as being like, I'm going to bury my past. I'm mm-hmm. going to leave it all here. Mm-hmm. I'm getting mm-hmm. off this rock. I don't need this anymore. That, I'm that's done. how I took it, too. Yeah. Okay. Because mm-hmm. he left it, or did he leave it for the next possible Reese to pick up and take on the mantle?
2: Uh, oh, interesting. Interesting. Wow. Like, no matter what happens, if you come here, you will have to pick up this knife and— fight to survive. It's a bit dark in an already dark episode.
1: AR-559 looks good too. A donut shop renowned throughout the entire quadrant. I'm just saying, anywhere but AR-558.
2: We'll get back to the siege of AR558
0: in just a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsor. So John, there's big news from our favorite home security company, Simply Safe. Just launched their new wireless outdoor security camera. That's right. Simply Safe, the system that US News and World Report names as the best home security system of 2021, just got even better. Now this brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all of the advanced tech and security features you want and need to help keep you and your family safe.
2: Oh yeah, and uh, I will tell you about that amazing new camera right now. (laughs) It has an ultra-wide 140 degree field of view so you can keep watch over your entire yard. It has 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. It has a built-in spotlight with color night vision so you can keep an eye on what's going on day and night. And it's simple to use and set up and usually just takes minutes. And it has an easy to remove rechargeable battery so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. That's actually one of my favorite things about SimpliSafe is the amount of wireless that is built into their products and the ease of use with their app. I mean, having everything accessible on a smartphone is brilliant, definitely makes these the security system of the 21st century. And, by the way, this camera has it all, and it integrates with your SimpliSafe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door,
0: window, and room are protected, and now your property will be too. So, to learn more about this exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit slash mission log. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system, and your first month of monitoring service is free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's slash mission log. Well, we mentioned in the last segment, but uh,
2: let's talk about Armin, and specifically let's talk about Quark, because there is something that is such a change here that I really love getting after seven seasons, well, you know, six and a half into the seventh season of this character. Um, Now, yes, let's dispense with the idea that it is a little weird that he is along for this mission at all. But once we can accept that he is there, I think they use him brilliantly, and it makes us as the audience really ask some questions about him and the the totality of Quark that we have seen over all these years. Mainly, you know, where has this serious, thoughtful side of him been all along? It's sort of like the quark that we see at the bar is an act, or or if not totally an act, it is a persona. Mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder where the real quark ends and the persona begins, and, and how much of that is genuine or not. I love being thrown this kind of curveball this far into the series, you know? Mm-hmm. And we've seen these little bit moments of growth in quark where... Um, you start to see his principles really come out or develop over time, and standing up for principled positions. I, it, you know, it, it made me think: what else has he seen in his life? What is the history of Cork that has made him so strongly interested in Nog's life at this moment in Starfleet? It it really changes everything the way you look at at him now. I you go, know, well, he's the fun-loving bartender. But there's got to be a history there as well. Of course, he's concerned. Of course, Naga's family and this is war. But it's also this battle of principle and priority and philosophy that I just found so incredible to watch. And to your point earlier, Armin underplays it. Perfectly. Mm-hmm. This is not the Quark who's sort of yelling and getting the upper hand and and verbally sparring at the bar. It's the dramatic moments that have the real payoff from well,
0: here. Or even the Quark when they were ch- trying to take you know Jadzia's memory to Stovakor. You know when he's on yes. the bridge. Yeah. You know, Because we actually really didn't like that Quark. We thought yeah. that that Quark was obnoxious and yeah. overbearing and demanding and overstepping his bounds. Yes. In a yes. big way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we actually saw this very first glimpse of this version of Quark when he was talking to Garrick in the bar about the, you know, the Dominion in Root Beer or the yeah. Federation in Root Beer. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that in his position as a bartender, as aloof as he may be as that particular profession, it gives him the opportunity to observe so many different personalities, listen to so many different conversations, kind of cross-pollinate with so many different cultures and I think that informs him as a Ferengi businessman who he can and can't trust, who he can deal with, who he has the advantage over, and who he has to make sure that he can maneuver so that he gets the higher percentage of all of his deals.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think that all boils down to, in this particular case, it all boils down to survival. If there's, there's, um, there's a very strange reason why he's there, aside from the fact that they need him to be Uh, to affect these certain specific plot points with Nog and with Cisco. But if you take that and accept that for what it is, basically Quark here is, he's the realist. You know, he Mm -hmm. is the non-combatant that looks at the situation in a survivalist's point of view. I don't want to be here. I don't want the closest thing that I have to my own son to be here because we don't have any stake in your war Remember the Fe- the Ferengi didn't want this. He even said that we negotiated or we we're supposed to negotiate against this. He even brings up his principles. You know, the, there's a rule of acquisition that war is good for business from a distance because you can't profit if you're dead. Now, even though they use that humorously, so he's very consistently about what do we get out of this involvement? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that Na gets out of this involvement is losing his leg. Because he's like, yeah, sure. Reese said the kid did all right. Is that worth your leg? Cisco saying that you did your job. Is that worth your leg? Yeah. Losing, losing your, uh, your health or, or risking your health for who? The Federation. Is that worth it? No, mm-hmm. we're Ferengi. We have nothing to do with this. And I like that, that Quark brings that clarity to this equation.
2: Well, what Quark is doing, he's representing this side of Nog that Nog has tamped down in order to pursue this career with Starfleet. You know, you you can't, there really is nobody else who would have this conversation with Nog except inside Nog's own head. Mm-hmm. You know, Because there has to be a part of him that is afraid, and and that definitely would see the consequences uh, uh, or all the possible consequences of their course of action here. But Rom isn't going to be this voice. Right. Um, nobody else who's there in their official capacity is going to be this voice for him. So you really need Quark there to express what, what has to still be a part of Nog somehow. The
0: only thing that That bothered me about Nog's attitude in this whole episode was why is he still that Red Squad cheerleader, right, for the officers? He doesn't know Reese from Adam, yet he puts him on a pedestal because he's seen war. Mm -hmm. All of these officers that have been on 558, they've all seen five months of very consistent fighting and war, have died, have bled, and Nog idolizes them. Why? Yeah, I I was trying to figure
2: that out because Nog has been through a lot already. Yes, he's not totally green, um, and I did wonder like, is he? I guess at this point, he is the best proxy just to have that sort of character. There's nobody on five five eight who would still be feeling that because they've all been through the worst of it. But you think, okay, at the end of his experience with basically a cult ship, uh, he would have woken up a bit, handed in his red squad pin and said, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. Uh, that he would have a little clearer head on his shoulders there. And, and that's why I wonder, you know, it is just sort of like a coping mechanism for him to be able to tamp down the, the fear or the concern about the other consequences that then he, he just sort of goes full bore. Well, I'm just going to show
0: that I can be the best of the best. Um, it, it's hard to say with him. My worry is that he will become the apologist for Captain Cisco's choices. The way yeah. that, you know, the uh, the young girl was the apologist for the Valiance mm-hmm. captain's choices. And we Captain criticized Chan. that. Captain Chad. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we, we criticized that particular uh, young female officer for being mm-hmm. the apologist. We criticized her um, fairly strongly. Yeah. And my concern, again, is whatever Nog says or does from this point forward, he is going to, in some way, legitimize Sisko's choices and forgive him for being just, this is what my commander chose for me to do, I have to accept that blindly, because that's what leaders in military choose for their officers to do.
2: You know, this is a really interesting course of thought, though, and it might actually affect uh, some of my my wrap-up points, because I'm wondering now if um, it, it really depends on where NOG goes with this. Did it just take a moment of horrific personal injury, for him to eventually come to the other side to, to be able to see kind of the bigger picture here. Or else would he have simply always been this gung-ho, do what my commander says, be, be the best soldier in line that I can be? And if that's the case, what, what was it that he was getting from Starfleet up to this point? How did he somehow get the message of Starfleet and the at least the, the stated objectives of Starfleet to turn him into that? And like you just said, to be an apologist for potentially bad decisions. So I wonder, you know, obviously there is more to this story to follow. There is more of Nog to follow. Um, but does it take things getting this bad for him to realize what's going on quark was already the voice of reason there Mm -hmm. you know um let's move on a little bit because i do want to talk about starfleet since i mentioned them and uh mentioned kind of what is the what is the driving force there what is their in this case responsibility to those officers who are on ar-558 where are they? And is this simply an unwinnable scenario? Presumably all their other ships are taken. They're all on other important missions. Uh, they are stretched thin. We, we keep getting that, uh, that implication through the episode. But by the end, we have another ship show up to be able to cycle out some of these officers it just happens Cisco and crew were, were almost at the end of the, the, the original. Um, but look at the scenario. You've got officers who are taking a beating who need relief in a place that is important and strategic, as we are being told over and over again. Why aren't there more ships in the area to protect it? those soldiers cannot do their jobs if they are worn down that far Mm -hmm. so is starfleet just being completely irresponsible or do we just have to fill in the blanks in our heads for this story to make sense to say well there was no other way
0: i'm not a fan of that uh conclusion you know to Mm -hmm. extrapolate that conclusion because they set up their own goals uh, in what Vargas said, that Starfleet's policy is to rotate soldiers out every 90 days. Are we mm-hmm. to assume that then Starfleet is so unable to actually meet their own policy that they would jeopardize this very specific, very important communications device because they can't? So mm-hmm. that's a corner that the writers themselves painted in. Uh, they, don't, they didn't have to say that, that that was their policy. They were saying, we will do the best we can to get our very stretched, thin resources replenished as soon as possible because— so it just took five months and what? How many hours? 72 hours to get a mm-hmm. full squadron replenish <sighs> that base? Yeah. Uh, if they knew that, then why would Cisco and company go there to begin with?
2: Yeah exactly right it's like the exactly. end of
0: any war movie and I say this uh, you know sarcastically so that all of a sudden this giant battle takes place most of the major characters that you fell in love with from the beginning of the movie to the end die horribly and mm-hmm. then at the end when the smoke clears and the Sun rises there's an entire fresh platoon that just sweeps in to clean yeah. everything up that is right. a load of narrative irresponsibility <laughs> yeah. it really is yeah you know because you don't set up expectations just to subvert them because the heroes have to sweep in and save the day and clean everything up. I think that is actually very, very irresponsible writing.
2: Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about something else that could be in question vis-a-vis Starfleet and what's going on here. There's not a whole lot made of that ethical discussion about using the Houdini mines. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Look,
2: Esri calls it out, And Captain Sisko has a point. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: End of discussion. That's it. Esri says her two sentences. (laughs) Sisko says one sentence. And that's the end. And then, yes, it leads to a very dramatic outcome in the story. But I I wondered, had this been a different show, would we have had a longer discussion about the fact that they're doing this? I mean, if we were to cut them a little slack on this, uh, this is an enemy weapon— There is not something that is made specifically about part of Starfleet's charter or rules to say we absolutely do not use these no matter what, like we did with a cloaking device that we decided at some point we'll just use anyway. Well, they were
0: way bigger than small mines. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) But, um,
2: But in this case, okay, we have a cloaked mine, which seems to raise at least some
0: question, and then we just proceed right ahead with using it.
2: I think, Justified
0: or not? Well, I think the algebra of this equation is when Cisco says, no, these are... Dax calls them out, and Jadzia would have mm-hmm. called him out too, not just Esri. Jadzia would have said yeah. the same thing. 100%. If you say X at the beginning of an episode, then you actually capitulate to Y, mm. then the algebra says that you have become X, mm. right? Because if it's good enough for the enemy and their morality, and you make it good enough for you, you adopt their morality.
2: Mm. Yeah. That's, that's the simple yeah.
0: math of the equation. Totally. If you choose to change your morality and try and find a better solution to neutralize them, then you have at least engaged the option of doing something differently, not adopting the enemy morality. So what is Cisco actually choosing to do here? Is he choosing to accept that the Hadar have better ways to murder soldiers? Therefore, if we figure that out, we have better ways to murder soldiers, our enemies, and therefore, if it helps us win, then that's okay. Yeah. I'm not taking an opinion yeah. whether for or against. I'm just saying specifically those are the facts in front of us. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it, totally. And, and that's, I, I think, very cleverly, this episode just drops that right into the middle and says, by the way, we're going to have a question about the, uh, the, the ethic, moral use of this <laughs> weapon, and we're going to question it, and then we're just going to move on. Mm-hmm um it it is in so many ways this was a kobayashi maru situation for the people who were stuck there at ar 558 and the wild card is you throw in cisco and a handful of people who are a little better relaxed and refreshed and can look at this with a new perspective then you throw in okay well here's a weapon that we can use that might actually give us the advantage because guess what the enemy is coming no matter what whether we like it or not However well-prepared we think we are, we will never be as well-prepared as they are. So the only way we can do this is to use their tactical advantage as our own.
0: Isn't there an old adage saying that if you use the tactics of the enemy, you become the enemy? Yeah. I just want to Uh, put that out there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, And therein lies part of the moral conundrum of this episode. Let me go back to something about Quark here, real quick, because he does have that wonderful monologue mm-hmm. about humans. <laughs> And I won't read the whole thing, but I I did, I just, I had to grab a, a chunk of that where he says, you know, humans are wonderful, friendly people as long as their bellies are full and their hollow sweets are working, but take away their creature comforts, deprive them of food, sleep, sonic showers, put their lives in jeopardy over an extended period of time and those same friendly, intelligent, wonderful people will become as nasty and violent as the most bloodthirsty Klingon. And I thought that was a wonderful monologue, as truthful as it is, as scary as it is. uh, It it was quite good. And it made me think about Star Trek's very often pointed look at war and our human, very precarious relationship with our own nature. I've referred to this many times on our show and in person at conventions, cetera. that Captain Kirk admitted he was a barbarian, if not for the choice of not killing. And that sounds so simplistic, but Star Trek shows us over and over examples of our heroes working for peace and only resorting to violence when there is absolutely no other option. And because this is, quote-unquote, entertainment, sometimes those stories aren't given the gravity that they should – until a series like this and an episode like this one specifically come along and get to do that, get to actually explore the weight and the gravity of those ideas. I I love that. I I love that Quark is able to give us this additional perspective, this additional insight where Kirk made it sound so easy. I get to choose. And, And we've referred to that on Mission Log before, just Well, look, war is terrible, war is hell, but we can choose to not be there. The problem is, what if the other guy doesn't make that same choice with us? And Mm -hmm. what if we are forced into a corner? How do we act again, and how do we maintain our same sense of ethical self, even when we are forced to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do? And, you know, Quark is very correct in his assessment, uh, I'm saying that I wish that he weren't so correct, but he is. It's always just going to be a matter of where that line is that you can still keep making the best possible choice. I would argue that, you know, I, as I've said on Mission Log many times, uh, the line is always the line is that you always choose to do the right thing, even when it's a difficult thing to do. But here's Quark making it that much more difficult for the humans that he observes.
1: While they're wondering when and how Quark became socially aware, I'm wondering when and how he learned to draw a phaser like that. Because, wow, Quark.
0: So we have come to the end of our discussion regarding the siege of AR-558. I could be pithy and I could be very comical here to try and lighten up the mood, but I really do think that we need to stay within the, the theme of this episode and see where we have landed, John, you and I, and see does this episode hold up and does this episode have any significant morals or meanings or messages. I'd like to dive right in with you and see how you felt about this episode overall And then tackle the triple M's at the end.
2: You know, it's an interesting thing whenever we get to this part of the podcast, specifically where we ask if the show holds up. And somebody just asked me about that the other day. And um, let let me kind of give a refresher here for anyone who is joining Mission Log late or needs that as a refresher. This is a category that we purposely keep vague because we can look at a story and decide if the production values hold up or maybe if the performances elevate the material or maybe if the production sinks because it feels dated or poorly conceived. This is really just sort of an open-ended way to say, well, how did we feel about the episode before we get into what the episode is trying to say? And, this is one of those where I, the, the episode of DS9, it, it is a rare exception because I'm I'm feeling like I'm almost reviewing something completely out of context. And that's a little weird to say. I, I get it. But, but because, yes, it is DS9. And it is still part of the Dominion War and this large arc that they've created. But they've essentially created this mini-war movie that has its own characters and its own dramatic arc, and the production and direction and casting all reflect this. Um, And in the end, it not only holds up beautifully in the context of DS9, but also as its own uh, singular slice of tv it's a rare DS9 episode where you could almost pull this out of the series, show it to someone with only a basic understanding uh, of the overall story, and yet have it still work on every possible level. This is a kind of risk-taking, dramatically and stylistically, that I love to see Star Trek take. Um, right before, uh, well, right at the end of the battle, Uh two very simple lines we held those were our orders sir i i might have gotten a little teary there and and they they used sound and music and visuals to perfectly tell a story without forcing every piece of the story on us this was an excellent example of tv being elevated to something beyond its intention this was artistic and it was emotional and dramatic um, I can't say enough good things about this episode. I so appreciate the risks that they took here, and um, I'll continue into that when we get into the morals, meanings, messages. But, but but that's just to be able to take this as a slice of, does the production hold up, and really treat it as something
0: different. Uh, how about you, Norman? Well, as many of our viewers know, our listeners know, that we take— um... We take and view these episodes several times to make sure that these land, these morals, meanings, messages, the way that this episode lands with us, you know, is is exactly where we think it is going to, uh, especially after the first or second viewing. I watched this episode five times Mm -hmm. because every single time I watched it, I landed differently Mm -hmm. on it. And I think it's because I have a very difficult internal struggle with where I want to an episode like this to land for Mm. me when it comes to quote unquote, what I believe is star Mm. Trek. Now let me caveat that by saying, I agree with everything that you said in your assessment of does this episode hold up without restating the obvious. And I always apply this to deep space nine, the production, the performances, the acting, the writing, the directing, they're all above board. And then some, and then in this episode, Armin and Aaron, especially Mm. just yeah. Kill it. They just are amazing. That scream that Aaron gave, I don't know how many takes it took him to get that right yeah. scream, but that it still mm-hmm. haunts me in the back of my mind right now, even thinking mm-hmm. about it. So all of that being said, all of that put aside, why did I have to struggle with watching this over and over again so many times? Mm-hmm. It's because I keep asking myself and, and filtering it through the subcategory of our mission mm-hmm. statement on Mission Log is this Star Trek? Mm. And I really had to, to contemplate what that means to me as I'm watching deep space Nine or episodes like this. It doesn't necessarily mean it's deep sure, space sure. nine only. Yeah. So is this Star Trek? This is the question that we always challenge each and every episode as we work through them in every series of Star Trek. And to be completely honest for me, this tone for me isn't Star Trek. And I think that this is the entire point of this episode and similar episodes in tone and execution. This episode isn't Star Trek for Mm. me. Mm -hmm. It's Star Trek for the fans who want to see Star Trek evolve and mature into a fandom and a franchise that gives them the morals and meanings and messages that they need Mm. for the context and the enrichment For their lives. And quite honestly. That is the most Star Trek ideal. That I can understand about Deep Space Nine as Mm. a whole. Both individual fans. And the whole of Niner fandom. Have found deeper meaning in this series. Than I ever Mm. will. And in doing so. It has enriched their lives in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend. And it's in the pursuit of that understanding that is, in very fact, the at the very base of what I-D-I-C is. And isn't that the truest of Star Trek philosophies? That is so
2: well stated and so provocative. I, I, I really like it. I... Um... I, I tend to, you know, my, my hackles go up a little bit when I hear that phrase that you and I ask each other very often, is this Star Trek? Because I, I think in the worst way, it can be misinterpreted by some Star Trek fans to think, well, we're we're gatekeeping, we're saying that this does or does not fall in line. And I think really what we're asking is, do we have some expectation out of Star Trek? The kind of stories that it tells, the the kind of morals that we assume it wants to impart to the audience, or is it a format, or is it a particular type of collection of characters? You know, what is it? And then where do our expectations fall along those lines? Mm-hmm. So yes, it's Star Trek. It has the name Star Trek on it. But what do we bring individually here that says, okay, my understanding, my expectation out of Star Trek is a particular type of moral story. And to me, looking at this, I go, is Star Trek a war story? Well, there have been battles in Star Trek before. There have been references to wars in Star Trek before. I mean, go back to TOS, and and you refer to... Uh, uh, the the Romulan War. You know, we know that this is constant cold war with the Klingons and and there are spaceships that are blown up and there are things that happen, you know, but by the same token, it's not Star Wars, (laughs) you know, by the same token, it's not about the war story overall, but here it is. And DS9 has dug into this idea that we're going to explore this long arc war story. But we're also going to explore the very nature of moral and ethical decision-making within that. And you and I certainly have called out some things that did not sit well with us in DS9 as they did Mm -hmm. that. But I think this story is the rare exception where I'll say, okay, we're doing a war story, but we're doing it in a Star Trek way that I think gives this a bit more gravitas. And let, let me sort of segue that into what I pulled out of this as far as morals, meanings, messages go. Because I'll be very curious to hear if we, if we have parity on this at all. Um, you, you know, just going back a step, we keep getting faced with what makes DS9 different quote-unquote, from other iterations of Star Trek. And it usually comes down to consequences or the lack thereof. And it often has to do with the realism of given situations. And, Norman, you and I have pushed back a lot. And I think justifiably so whenever DS9 creates some situation which challenges our leads and then asks us just to consider how hard their decisions are. And then sort of indicate, well, we should just go along with it because real life is hard. Um, That that can get frustrating and, and often makes me wonder why we're telling that story in the first place. Now we have an episode that is dark in every possible way that is as gritty and real as anything we will ever see in Star Trek. And I can tell you that I love it because the messages are there about war being hellish and an unwinnable situation to be in. Even if you win, you don't win. There is still a a human factor, a human cause, And I'm using human as a stand-in there for all the characters that we care about, for all the lives that we care about, that will ultimately cost lives, and that will always be the ultimate cost. And every one of those lives is worthy and impactful. We don't necessarily need to see Cisco learn that here. He already knows it, just as we all do. But we have a reminder at the end of the episode that the names on the wall aren't just names and numbers. They are lives, people who meant something to the people in their lives. Side note. When we record this specifically isn 't really important other than to say that we are more than a year into a global pandemic as we do this, and we have gotten used to the idea of looking at case numbers and death rates just because it 's part of that 's a great point, it is John. that is a great part point. of the news every day I looked today mm-hmm. I looked today ten minutes before we recorded this. The daily COVID death rates for the U.S. is a number that floats between 1,000 and 1,300 per day as of this week. And how many of those stop to look at those as names? Names Mm -hmm. of people who affected other people and whose lives are affected because they're gone. And I, I thought about reading that as Cisco would look at names on a wall that come in as a report from Starfleet during a war. During a war, for God's sake. And we're here mm-hmm. just battling this other thing, this this in, intangible, untouchable, unseeable thing. So what's most impactful to me is, is that we have an impossible situation here. And, and we are bound up in the complexity of duty to the mission, even when that comes at an incredible cost. And guess what? The people who are pushed to the edge maintain their professionalism and their integrity and their sense of purpose, and it is incredibly hard. There isn't an easy way out, and there isn't a cheat that they can exploit, but they do it. <laughs> we well, can talk about, you know, the, the, uh, the moral choice to use the weapons that they do, but they were there, they were available to them. They succeed because they work together and they motivate each other, even when it comes to moments of fear and self-sacrifice. I'll wrap this up by using the words that Yoda once used that we've referenced on Mission Log before when talking about TOS. Wars not make one great. And it's Nog who learns this lesson. His disillusionment, is important and necessary. And you wonder how many people need to internalize that lesson, but won't until they actually go through it themselves. Quark tries. He tries so hard to just get Nog to understand, but Nog is so driven by his own motivation to be the model Starfleet officer, conflating that with bravery and battle, that I, I think he stops seeing the big picture there. And a part of me is heartbroken to think that somebody doesn't see that bigger picture until pain and injury actually visit them to go oh wait there is a bigger bigger principle at stake here that's mm-hmm. how i thought about looking at those numbers that's how i thought about looking at the parallel between what's happening now world well in our country but also worldwide when you look at the bigger numbers as well that why is it that it's so hard for us to look at the larger impact when the numbers are right there in front of us? But until there's a personal cost, until there's a personal experience, we don't actually get it. We don't actually internalize it.
0: Well, I think that's very much part of the human condition. Unless it happens to you, it doesn't really happen yeah. at all. Right. You know, it comes with all different types of decisions that either come from on high in terms of our government or locally, you know, but nothing ever really bad happens until you have the experience of something terribly bad happening to you. And I think that I think that Nog is he hasn't quite slid yet. I think he's on the slope. And I think that when he asked Captain Cisco, we are doing this for the right reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's the very first time you actually heard out in his conviction towards being a Starfleet officer. And I find it really similar to, say, the way in Born on the Fourth of July, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Cruise's portrayal of Ron Kovic, how Ron Kovic was 100% on board with serving the military. That was his generation. That's what they felt they needed to do, to serve, to sign up for Vietnam, and to fight communism. And then he was wounded. And then he started thinking for himself. And then he realized that not everything was as he expected it to be post his injury. And I think that that's that moment where people begin to stop believing in the politics or the momentum of the time and start thinking for themselves. And somewhere along the line, John, I think that that is where quark is coming from he had that experience Mm -hmm. something in his past allowed him to see the larger portion of this tapestry of the truth of the situation but i will say this even though i'm not personally on board with the the heaviness and tone of this wartime deep space Mm -hmm. nine story what this particular episode has opened my eyes to is the writing team taking the opportunity to examine the quote-unquote humanity of their characters in these most dire of wartime circumstances? I can accept this, and in doing so, it allows me to focus more clearly on what the story conveys in terms of morals, meanings, and messages. Most notably, in that exchange that you read earlier between Quark and Nog, And uh, while they were observing Reese outside the perimeter, he had literally the equivalent of what soldiers did in Vietnam, taking the ears of the soldiers, of the Vietnamese soldiers they killed, and stringing them up on necklaces. Either the Vietnamese soldiers did that or the American forces soldiers did that. Those have been... I am not going to say I'm a historian. I'm not saying I'm factually stating these things, but we have seen those represented in other stories before. Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, things of that nature. So that story its one of Armin's finest performances, and it really illustrates what are they doing there? Who made that choice for them to be there, and why are they participating? Yeah. So. This episode, more than any other I've seen so far in Deep Space Nine, it actually mentally transports me back all the way to A Taste of Armageddon in the original series, the end of that episode, where, and specifically when Kirk has made war a horrible, brutal, violent reality for a non-seven, and... They exchange these very specific words. We've mentioned them before, but I want to put these on the record contextually. Anon Seven says, there can be no peace, don't you see? We have admitted it to ourselves. We're a killer species. It's instinctive. It's the same with you, your general order 24. And Kirk says, all right, it's instinctive, but the instincts can be fought. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands, but we can stop it. Now, take a step back from that. It would be irresponsible of me to try and contextualize my final analysis in this episode with just war is bad. War is terrible. It's horrific. Mm -hmm. That's an unfair encapsulation of, of a moral meaning or message. This episode isn't necessarily about the morality of war. It's about how even war can destroy the most optimistic and idealistic of souls. In this case, Nog, there are no winners in war. There are only casualties. When there are campaigns designed to systematically eliminate life for the enforcement of imaginary lines on paper maps and digital borders. The only winner is death itself. The only loser is life itself. So how do we eventually learn from this? Going back to what Kirk said and his ultimate solution to the warlike barbarism that he references, we can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes, knowing that we won't kill today.
2: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit
0: trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Covenant.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shable. <music> AR558 really has nothing to offer except all you can eat, Jem'ha I am totally leaving this place a one-star Yelp review.